Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. All the meals are chef-crafted, dietitian approved they're always fresh, never frozen, and unbelievably, they're ready to go in just two minutes. You've got more than 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. That's not including any of the 60-plus add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. That's right, no dishes. And they're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime, like if you decide to go on vacation or something. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com infamous50 and use code infamous50 to get 50% off. That's code infamous50 at factormeals.com infamous50 to get 50% off. This episode is for mature audiences. By the early 1980s, feminists had had a lot of wins in the area of protecting American women. They'd finally secured laws around domestic violence. And the next area on the docket was children's rights. And lobbying for kids was successful. So now there is a whole lot of new funding for programs to take care of children complete with a new spate of PSAs, or public service announcements. This PSA aired in 1984, and it's 42 minutes long. Watching the parade of celebrities all smiling benignly at the camera like this is an episode of Sesame Street, you realize that society was really trying to address kids now, to center kids, who had not so long ago gotten hit a lot with a belt. Hey, would you listen to that beautiful chorus of voices? Thanks, kids. And now I'd like you to meet a very good friend of mine. We're almost flesh and blood, you know? Mr. Henry Winkler. Hey, take a bow, Henry. That's the funds from the sitcom Happy Days, which was hugely popular at the time. Hi, I'm very glad to see you. And I'm very glad to see you. And I'm very glad to see you. The main thrust of this PSA, it becomes clear, is that the Fonz and the rest are here to calm down kids who seem to be in crisis. Nobody talks to me. I feel left out. This is a really crucial time for kids. It's a time when they need to be listened to, to be believed in. This is really important for their self-esteem and also important so that they'll grow up to be healthy adults. This is the other thrust of the PSA, that to help kids, parents must trust them. Sometimes without meaning to do so, we, we blame the child. Here's the way it happens sometimes. Why, Why didn't you, you tell, tell me? me? I did, I did. I did. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. And sometimes in our anxiety, we, we blame the child. We say, Why, Why did you, you let, let him, him do it? You told me I always had to obey grown-ups. My parents don't listen to me. We really have to listen more carefully to what our children are saying to us. <laughs> That's right, Baby Smurf. Always tell someone you trust. Don't keep it to yourself. You're on your way to becoming an askable parent. Oh, yeah, I can dig that. 
If you wanted to be a supportive parent, a really in-touch parent who could dig that, you needed to let your kids come to you with problems. And if they did, you had one job, to believe them. So now all these askable parents digging into this issue were now going to put these new ideals to work, at least in Maplewood. From Sony Music Entertainment and Campside Media, this is Infamous. I'm Natalie Robomed, and this is episode two of our series, Kelly and the Satanic Panic. So last episode, Vanessa was narrating, and we'll be trading back next episode. She introduced you to Kelly Michaels from Pittsburgh, daughter of a nurse and an insurance broker who was working at a daycare in Maplewood, New Jersey. This episode, we're going back to the 1980s, to a time when kids needed to be listened to. Cherubic children were under attack, but not from family members, people who actually oftentimes abuse kids, as we know from data. They were under attack from strangers. Left and right, kids were being kidnapped. In almost every case, children were snatched and later sacrificed. What they would do is uh, the kids would go and play with the children and then tell them that they were either going to go to a party or that there was some toys or whatever and get them so they weren't on the move and then grab the kids. On every corner, there was a stranger waiting to abduct your perfect child and media wanting to tell you about it. Here's Oprah Winfrey. You know, there are thousands of men and women who are secretly worshipping the devil, the devil. If you'd like to join that audience on Thursday when we discuss Satanism, call now to reserve your seat. Right around this time, Kelly was a young person working in Maplewood, New Jersey, dreaming of being an actress 25 miles away in Manhattan. Why would you study theater? It was like the most impractical thing. My mother was like, study nursing. No, I want to be in the arts. Like My dad's like, well, she's going to be poor. She was forgoing even a home phone line to pursue her dream of acting and to pay the rent working at We Care Nursery. She liked to devise play acting games where she was a monster and chased the kids or the jail game where kids had to pull her into a closet and lock her up. And then after a number of months, she left for the same job at a daycare closer to her apartment. It was only a mile's walk from her house. But right after this, a four-year-old boy at WeCare said Kelly had taken his temperature, not with a strip on his forehead, but in his bottom. The police brought her in for questioning. They interviewed me and basically offered me that first day, the first interrogation, to take an insanity plea. I said, I'm not taking an insanity plea. I said, well, then you're probably going to go to jail the rest of your life. I'm back to work the next day. Told the new director. You know, she was horrified. She means the director at her new job, who Kelly really liked and saw as a friend. Not only that, the director knew this type of thing was happening at daycares across the country, accusations of child abuse, and she was sympathetic to Kelly. Being director, she was a much older lady, and she said, oh, Kelly, I'm going to, well, I'm going to try to help you. Because she was a lady of means compared to me as this like struggling artist with nothing. <laughs> she was like a pseudo-mom figure. So she said, go ahead and work. After the police questioning, Kelly was shaken, but thought it was all over. She told the truth and they sent her home. But she says, two weeks later, everything changed. I saw the director who called me out of the classroom and she was like, she is pale. She said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. These police, they told me about, they're, they're here and they want to speak to you. And she said, I'm so sorry. And uh, 
I was, of course, in shock. So I go down, they're in a classroom, almost like the stereotype. At least one of them was with a raincoat and this look back, newer mm -hmm. cop with black hair. And the bad grammar, like, you're going to jail, lady, you know. And all that, you know, the talking like that, you're going to jail, lady. You don't effing believe you. You better get your quit your effing job, lady, because we're going to indict your ass. Kelly and her family called the ACLU and famous lawyers. We called Alan Dershowitz, who wouldn't take our calls, and that was like, and you're just looking up famous names, civil rights lawyers. And I would just sit in cafes or coffee shops or whatever in the area and just like, wait, it's not really, are they going to, is it going to be to arrest me or how does this even happen or is it going to go away? Because they just said basically they're in further investigation, not knowing, like in, in this crazy, painful limbo. Mm -hmm. We think this just can't possibly go any further. So um, one morning it did, they knocked on the door and the cops that came and they arrested me. Kelly was hauled away and now she was going to find out exactly what she was being accused of. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. All the meals are chef crafted, dietitian approved, they're always fresh, never frozen, and Unbelievably, they're ready to go in just two minutes. You've got more than 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. That's not including any of the 60 plus add ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. That's right, no dishes. And they're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime, like if you decide to go on vacation or something. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com infamous50 and use code infamous50 to get 50% off. That's code infamous50 at factormeals.com infamous50 to get 50% off. Hey everyone, it's Vanessa and I'm here to talk to you about Noom. Noom is a personalized weight loss plan. It's not just one size fits all. It takes into account your dietary restrictions, your medical issues, and any other personal needs. It's like a psychology plan, just it meets you where you are. And it also recognizes that losing weight is really a mental process. It starts with your motivation and with your brain. Noom's approach is also grounded in science. They've published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles that describe their methods and effectiveness. So stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. You can sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes. It's available to buy now, wherever books are sold. This is Infamous from Campside Media. Kelly was just another woman caring for professional women's children, making brief chit-chat with them in the gym at pickup, digging into her pocket to buy Girl Scout cookies to help out their older girls in real school with fun drives. But the accusations against her, which kept growing, we're not just taking a temperature incorrectly. Here's what happened. In May 1985, after the Child Protective Services Agency was called, Case 402 was opened in the Essex County Prosecutor's Office. 
You see, the boy who first accused Kelly Michaels was the son of a police officer and the grandson of a superior court judge. In other words, they were a pretty influential family. And two other boys also had things to say. One said Kelly had put the thermometer up his bum, and another said he was just afraid of her. Why are you afraid? This parent asked the boy. He said it was because she touched his private parts with a spoon. The head of WeCare Nursery sent out a letter to all the parents explaining that some allegations had been made against a former employee. The parents needed answers. On a warm night in May 1985, what felt like the entire daycare population, 65 or so parents, squeezed into a room at WeCare to hear more about Kelly Michaels. The meeting was being led by a social worker who was sent by the Essex County Prosecutor's Office. Her role seemed to be both to inform and to calm everyone down, though it felt like it did the opposite. Standing at the head of the room, she said, they needed to be vigilant for any signs of their kids changing their behavior. Were they suddenly wetting the bed? Were they having sleep difficulties, nightmares? Were they biting, spitting, afraid of going to school? These were clues that their child could have been abused. The parents became rigid. She could tell they were all thinking about the ways their children's behavior had changed since the Knapp Rebellion against Kelly. And according to a book, the social worker was then hit with a kinetic feeling of sudden conviction. Oh my God, she thought. They've all been abused. And soon, everyone in town agreed. At first, only three little boys were involved. But as investigators for the state interviewed more children at WeCare, the number of charges escalated. This is one of the moms in the case. She explained how Kelly played Jingle Bells in the nude at the piano. She explained to him how Kelly had taken silverware and put it on the floor and had the children disrobe and pile one on top of the other. When did you believe or begin to believe that all of this may have happened? I believed it immediately. My child had never experienced anything. Like, in, in my knowledge, she had never experienced anything that could have caused her to relate these incidents, unless she had actually lived it. Now, part of how these parents knew this, just knew it, was that they had begun to bring their children in for questioning by a group of investigators. Weirdly, the investigation itself was taking place at the daycare. And even more oddly, because this hadn't been scientifically proven to work in cases of abuse, the investigators were using a prop to talk to the kids about what happened. Dolls. Mr. Parrot, can you help Susie show us what happened to her? Now, these aren't just any dolls. They're anatomically correct dolls. Nothing like Barbie or Ken with their smooth nether regions. These dolls look like real adults. They were popularized for use in this context by a woman called Key McFarlane, who's one of the main hosts of the Strong Kids video you heard at the beginning. There are a couple of friends I'd like you to meet. Key McFarlane. Hey, did I hear somebody say Key McFarlane? Terrific lady, knows what she's talking about. Close personal friend. Key McFarlane's dolls were used by the Maplewood investigators to assess what had happened to these kids. Using the doll, the investigator demonstrates a good touch and bad touch. Then the investigator starts telling the girl he's questioning 
about some of her classmates. And by the way, these are actors recreating real interrogations. All those kids were very brave. And they told me they got hurt with a bad touch. And some of them said that you might have been hurt with a bad touch too. But the child doesn't really respond. Instead, she says one of those whimsical, nonsensical things kids say. Do you remember when she called me Jackrabbit because I run so fast? Hearing this, it's so clear just how young this girl is. But the investigators keep going. In addition to the doll, they bring out a couple of utensils and ask her to start identifying them. What's this? A mixing spoon. Some of the kids were saying that the teacher hurt them with this thing. Where else do you think a little girl could have gotten hurt with a wooden spoon? Any place that you might be embarrassed to show me? We've read many pages of these interrogations with these young children, and they're all pretty similar. The investigators use dolls. They ask what seem like leading questions. They say things like, we've been talking to your friend, and your friend said X, Y, and Z. Did that also happen to you? And the kids, they respond. A lot of the time, it seems like they're saying what they think the investigator wants to hear. Or they're almost trying to be competitive with a classmate over who can say more. I'll show you an example from the same interrogation you just heard. We're changing names, by the way, to protect the children's identities. You're doing just as good as Dean and almost as good as Mark and better than Dan. And I'll tell you, you're being very helpful. Better than Dan? A little better than Dan. A little better, I have to say. What about Raymond? If you show me anything more, then you will have done better than Raymond. All this talking, over and over, it was all starting to snowball. The accusations began to get wilder and more fantastical. Kelly made them lick peanut butter off of her. Kelly made them drink pee. Kelly cut them with knives. Kelly floated through walls, threatened to turn a child into a mouse. It was like some horrible, depraved version of telephone. Except in this case, one of the benches at the daycare was sent out to a crime lab for traces of peanut butter and urine. And now real telephones, maybe beige, hanging on kitchen walls, began ringing across Maplewood. All of these parents speaking in hushed, rushed voices, cradling their landlines with curling cords in a palm. The parents at WeCare, far from thinking that the way to protect their kids was to not let them be a part of these interrogations, were wielding pitchforks. I'm the father. Who's mm-hmm. there? This is the father of one of the first boys who accused Kelly of abuse. He still lives in Maplewood, though he's retired. I worked in projects for a company, you know, should we invest here, should we invest there, that kind of stuff. At first, this father didn't want to talk to us. You're not a friend of Kelly's, right? No, 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 no. I am a journalist. This was a very, uh, uh, I know my wife's, this was very traumatic on my wife, and that was the primary concern, was her well-being. But she took it personally. This father worked in the city, but as the child abuse case got going, he spent more time at home. We had uh, meetings with the prosecutor, we had a lawyer, all that sort of stuff. The prosecutor would talk about the case and how it's proceeding. So we were informed at all times. We were satisfied with law enforcement. We thought they did their job properly. From our point of view, it was, uh, you know, shocking. And uh, I didn't 
uh, say too much because uh, a lot of this was in the hands of my wife, who's the one directly involved more than I was. There were phone calls placed and uh, they, they somehow communicated with one another. I was not part of that. There was talk on the phone, obviously. And we would do like conference calls or something? No. Very individual calls. <laughs> this, is, this is the old days. And they would just report to one another what was said. The mums, especially those who were abuse survivors themselves, saw no problem in talking to other mums, or to their kids, or the kids talking to one another, or to the people investigating. Maybe they even found it healing. And the dad felt that was fine. I don't feel he was being coached, no. How this could go on without anyone know about it is one of the strangest things, in fact, was brought up in the case, that none of her co-workers knew a thing about it. And I just cannot imagine you could take 30 kids or whatever the number is, go into the room and, and uh, do all sorts of crazy things and no one knows about it. That, uh, that really uh, has, that still befuddles me, except unless, uh, you know, they were lying because they didn't want to get involved. And Kelly, she was an outsider. Sure, just a few days ago, she'd been a teacher. That's what they called her, even though it was a daycare. A beloved slicer of apples who the kids often ran up to and hugged. But perhaps in the mother's eyes, Kelly was beginning to transform, to metamorphize, like Kafka's famous protagonist, into something else, something evil. Because Kelly wasn't like them to begin with. She was poor, young, a kind of free spirit, living with a girlfriend. A writer associated with the moms describes her as slovenly, in dirty jeans and loafers without a penny in them, twisted bandana around her thick neck, just a lowly hobbit. And gradually, Miss Kelly, the artsy nursery school teacher, stopped being Miss Kelly. She became a stranger, an evil one, who was out to get their children. These kids who were being questioned, asked to point out where bottoms were on dolls, asked to recount where exactly Kelly had touched or hit them, these kids began having nightmares displaying apparent signs of abuse. We know it happened not because we met with an investigator or we talked to a prosecutor. We know it happened because we lived with these children. This is one of the moms in the case. She's so confident, and it seems she doesn't want to hear any other interpretation of the children's stories. We had children sticking toothbrushes or trying to stick toothbrushes up their siblings. Oh, yes. We're like the witch hunters back in Salem, and we're like um, some, some McCarthy-era investigators out there trying to get Kelly. The change in the children's behavior wasn't just a metamorphosis. It was almost a possession. In a strange way, looking back, it's like the kids were possessed by the adults. They started parroting back things to investigators that they heard from the investigators or from their parents. Who had the wooden spoon in school? Kelly. How do you know Kelly had the wooden spoon? Because mommy told me. Now these parents and the children and all those seeking to protect them were going to come together to testify against Kelly. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. 
from shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, Comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently, The Big Flop looked at The Swan, a competition show between women who were hoping to transform their physical appearance. The problem? The women were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. It all led to trauma for the contestants and terrible reviews. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus. This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Infamous from Campside Media. So while all of this was happening, Kelly didn't say anything to anyone. Her lawyers told her not to. They said, don't talk. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Like, go, because at the time he said, if you even say something, even try to say, hello, I'm, I'm, I'm innocent, they'll take a picture of you, which was such an awful atmosphere. That they'll, even if you turn to a reporter, look at your face, you know, contorted. <laughs> You know, like, oh, she's crazy, she's enraged, or whatever. <laughs> I was a frightened young person. Me now, of course, looking back, say, that is shitty advice. I'm going to talk because this is a, there's, there's no adults in the room. Even the adults in the room are all caught up in this uh, uh, insanity. Everybody just dutifully do these horrific crimes, mm-hmm. one person, and then get the kids to go, got all the clothes back on exactly perfectly, go back to their teachers, go back home every day, come back the next day, and never say, oh, by the way, you know, my, my teacher, you know, did such and such crazy insanity, mm-hmm. and I just forgot to tell you. Kelly's trial began on June 22, 1987, in the Essex County Superior Court. She was facing 131 counts of child abuse. The courthouse was in downtown Newark, one of the roughest parts of America back then, Close to Maplewood, but a world away. Debbie Nathan, the journalist you met last episode, went to see Kelly there. I checked into a Howard Johnson in downtown Newark, and downtown Newark was, you know, pretty weird. I was like outside of this hotel, and this this car went by, and it was shooting sparks because it didn't have tires. Drag racing a car at, you know, I don't know, 40 miles an hour with no tires. I mean, it was Newark in the late 80s. The case had occurred in the suburbs, but 
you know, the trial and everything was in downtown Newark at the courthouse. At the time, the McMartin preschool case was still going on in California. It would become the most expensive criminal trial in the state's history to date, costing taxpayers $15 million and lasting a total of 919 days. Kelly's would become one of the most expensive and longest trials in New Jersey to date, but she didn't know it yet. All she knew was she was frightened down to her toenails. I was the evil when when the media narrative was she's the monster of Maplewood, you know, mm-hmm. this terrible person. Um, you just, it doesn't matter who you are. They'll just like the fed, like they uh, project onto you almost supernatural evil characteristics. Well, she did theater, so therefore she could, she's an actress, so then she could fake people. The lawyers for the children were named Glenn Goldberg and Sarah Sensor McArdle. Well, everyone had big glasses back then. He was very Rasputin-like. I mean, he would tell you things as though he was confiding in you because you were so smart. Debbie shares a rumor that she heard in the courtroom, that lawyers were talking about Kelly's sexual orientation. You know, to call somebody a lesbian or to say that somebody was gay was not laughable at all back then. You know, she did this. So... You know, you're just trying to show that somebody's perverse, that they've got some kind of perverse characteristic. And that was considered perverse at the time. Debbie has some things to say about Glenn specifically. And by the way, Glenn did not want to speak with us for an interview. He also told me that he was a magician, which I think is very telling. I mean, he was very much into into um, rhetorical sleights of hand and kind of, um, you know creating illusions, I guess. He was a very slick guy, which belied his appearance, I think. I got this distinct impression that Glenn was sort of like those people during the witch hunts that's like, this is their occupation. They're not emotionally involved with this. They don't really care about witches. This is a job, right? They go out with their books. They open the book. It says the witch does this. But, you know, their job is to go from village to village and town to town finding witches, and it's just an occupation. They don't really care about it. I think that's the way Glenn was. Sarah, I think, was more of a believer, and I think she actually was not nearly as smart as Glenn and probably sincerely thought that Kelly was a pretty evil, culpable person. Um, But she seemed, again, like a pretty sad person. Standing in front of the judge and the jury, the prosecution relied on two main pieces of evidence, the testimony of the children and the testimony of expert witnesses. Estimates vary, but about one in nine girls and one in 20 boys under the age of 18 experience sexual abuse. More than a third of the abusers are family members, and the overwhelming majority of perpetrators are male. Kelly Michaels had very little in common with this profile, nor did she have any record of illegal activity or psychopathology in her past. But all these investigators, Key McFarlane, all these social workers, were part of a relatively well-funded movement of similar people across the country, from parents to therapists and law enforcement, who were coming together to believe the children. And this was an important case for them, a way to prove that the McMartin investigation in California wasn't just an anomaly, and a 23-year-old college grad from Pittsburgh could be as irredeemably evil as any other stranger on the street. Reports of child sexual abuse in the country have skyrocketed, up from 6,000 in 1976 to 113,000 in 1985. 
And those are just the reported cases. So what's going on here? Did McMartin just spawn imitators? Are we just spawning a new crop of bad seeds? The children were brought in to testify in the judge's private chambers rather than open court. Of the 19 kids who testified, only five of them had actually been in Kelly's class, which seems sort of crazy in hindsight. How was she supposed to have abused kids who weren't even in her class? Someone surely would have seen her crossing to and fro in the daycare, going to different rooms. Even the language the kids used was hard to believe. But then when they asked the kids, what did Kelly tell you to scare you? The Christian kids said, Kelly said she was more powerful than Jesus. And the Jewish kids said, Kelly said she was more, uh, more powerful than God. And I thought, oh, did Kelly know <laughs> what religion these kids were? But as bizarre and hard to believe as the children's testimonies were, who would stand up in court and say so? Who would testify for Kelly? It was Ralph Underweger, a psychologist and minister. Debbie wasn't a fan. It's sad that the defense had to call Ralph Underweger because at the time, there were very, very few people in psychology that were looking at suggestibility. Ralph just didn't appear credible on the stand. Really, these people had no scientific expertise. If an expert comes in and gives expert testimony that the facts that they give have to be based on something that's scientifically, empirically verifiable, and Underweger couldn't do that. So he wasn't really considered reputable, but there just wasn't anyone else to do it. You know, you just didn't want to be in the same room with him. But I guess that's the best that the defense could do. Ralph is deceased, but his wife, who worked as his partner, got on the phone with us. He did practically all the testifying, and I would do background work. I'd review things, I'd take notes, I'd get things organized, and then he would testify. Halida didn't testify in Kelly's trial, but she was also a psychologist. My late husband and I had a, a small clinical practice in the cities. Minneapolis, St. Paul, works alone in a home office. Cats is my only companions. <laughs> the prosecutor tried to discredit me in a jury trial by presenting me to the jury as a crazy cat lady. How many cats do you have? Five. <laughs> Brunhilde, Voton, Siegfried, Tosca, or fail. There were very few of us. And people experienced vilification. Clients dropped out, offices were picketed. The prosecutors present him and now me as a pedophile loving hired gun. It wasn't politically correct to not believe the children. And Ralph, on the stand, said what the jury needed to understand was that the children couldn't remember anything. They call infantile amnesia. Nobody can independently remember much of anything before they're on four or five. They're just, I would say, very subject to <laughs> manipulation at that age. But you can't develop 
permanent memories for things. To Halida, the kids' testimonies were just completely improbable and totally led by the investigators. Testimony said in effect that nothing had happened to the weak care children except the visits of the investigators. They reinforced, they made the suggestions, they asked leading questions, and they reinforced the kids. Oh, you're doing so well. In the Michaels case, it's were interviewed over and over and over again. Peanut butter and jelly foot spread on people and they had to lick it off. Wouldn't you think if you, with your child, you convince them that something happened that didn't happen that really traumatized them? Wouldn't yeah. that be abusive? And yet nothing Halita or Ralph said made a difference. The people were true believers. People believed, mm. they believed in what they were doing. They believed that there was ritual satanic abuse cult. Their arguments paled in comparison to three and four-year-olds coming forward and saying they had been harmed. There seemed to be such specific descriptions of abuse. The jurors didn't know how those claims had come about. From the dolls, from kids being asked to show where their teacher had hurt them, being asked where else. Kelly tried to do her best on the stand. The prosecution asked her to play piano for the court, which had supposedly been one of the skills that had gotten her hired in the first place. The lawyer pulled out a tiny Casio keyboard. At his insistence, she attempted a rendition of Jingle Bells with one finger. The lawyer promptly made fun of her for not being very good. The implication was that Kelly had lied on her resume. And if she had lied about being able to play piano, what else might she have lied about? And then I knew that he had argued during closing arguments that she was mentally unbalanced. She was an actress who did this because of her need to orchestrate plays, that that's what she was doing with the children, and that you could tell what her mental state was because she had written on her role book, the Joni Mitchell song, Both Sides Now, which kind of implicates her sexuality, the very title. I've looked at love from both sides now, from give and take. I, I felt that she'd been completely libeled and smeared. I mean, it was like blood libel or something. I, I think it was a long, tedious, painful process of indoctrinating. In this case, you have zealots, you have parents who become, became zealots. When I was convicted, I was like, it was the longest trial in New, Jer New Jersey history. It was very highly publicized. Uh, obviously, the crime, alleged crimes are, you know, I mean, I would have hated me. Standing there in front of the judge and the parents in that Essex County courtroom, Kelly Michaels completed her metamorphosis. The nursery school teacher, the aspiring actress, the lowly hobbit, had been alchemized by the children's testimony, by the dolls, by these kind parents who desperately wanted to listen to their children into an evil demon, a boogeyman, the absolute scum of the earth. The monster game she played with the kids had become real, and so had the jail game. In August 1988, Kelly the boogeyman was found guilty and sentenced to 47 years in prison. Next time, 
on Infamous. You're giving them the message, go back in the closet, don't talk about it, shut up and get on with your life. Well, that's what was going on for many, many years. An attack on child care, right? On women's ability to go to work. No one is willing to doubt a child. I came out, everyone came out of their cells and just stared me as I came down the hall. I thought I'm gonna die. I, I told stories about how they took us to churches for, you know, satanic rituals and things. It's not hard to lie. Everybody lies. You know, that's how people get ahead in life, is, is they lie.